Head of the NFL Players Association, Demora Smith, the one-time prosecuting attorney, is now charged with the players' interests in this multi-billion dollar gang. I don't believe in labor peace. On Commissioner Roger Goodell. You don't feel the players trust the commissioner? I don't believe it's good if our players don't trust it. And on facing racism. A note with the N-word and to have a guy actually sign his name to it. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. In college, you actually thought you were going to be a preacher, much like your grandfather and your four uncles. Yeah. Why do you think that? Uh, you know, from the time that I was a sophomore or a junior in high school, I, I just felt that's what my calling was. Uh, obviously, I come from uh, uh, a heritage where that is a, a very important part of our lives. Uh, I felt that's where I was being led. Um, it, it seemed to make sense when I got an offer to go to Cedarville College, and it was a Baptist college, and they gave me an opportunity to run track there. So everything seemed to be, uh, for lack of a better word, trending uh, in that direction, and, and, it, and it seemed right. Um, it, it, uh, I, I can't say that there was a day or a specific moment when um, I knew that that wasn't going to be it, but somewhere along again the sophomore or junior year of college, uh, I did start to, to feel that maybe that's not the direction that, that I was supposed to go. The summer going into your sophomore year in college, you were a, a sprinter, part of the track team. Uh, <laughs> end up getting pretty injured. You beat up your knee, and it's so bad that you end up having to miss a semester of school. And, and when you ended up coming back to school, what were you told? It was a you know a pretty devastating knee injury, um, tore the meniscus, cruciate ligaments, um, ACL. Um, I can remember going to the hospital uh, that night and ended up you know almost like a skit out of a film where the doctor came in and he had a, a couple of attendings, and I remember him saying, "You're never going to see a knee." Uh, more destroyed than this one, and I just remember thinking, wow, you know, what a great teaching moment. Um, that, that's what you thought, what a great teaching moment? Well, you know, I, sarcastically, you you got these people around and this doctor saying, you know, here's a guy, his knee, he'll never run again, he'll never be a sprinter again. Um, we're going to try something called reconstructive knee surgery, which at least at, at that point um, wasn't something that was happening every day the way that it is now. In the hospital for a week and a half, uh, and had to drop out of school because I, I was in a cast from my ankle to my hip for um, four months. Um, and uh, dropped out of school, came back home, rehabilitated, and uh, made the decision that I was going to try to run track that year, and, uh, and did. What happened to the scholarship? Um, the school did a, you know, they did right by me. Um, uh, they I had, did? I had to make the team. Uh, I wasn't getting a whole heck of a lot of money from from Cedarville, but um, they did continue to take care of me and, and took me again a, as a part of the team and um, climbed my way back up to the depth chart to the number one sprinter again. 1998, you're a prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office and you end up trying a, a gang-related case and receives a death threat. Um, what do you recall from having gone through that experience? Everything. Everything. Um, you know, it's not a good day, uh, obviously. Um, you know, I, I, right now, looking back on it, you, you, you do have a certain uh, sense of, of indestructibility uh, that's both, uh, I think, a creature of being young at the time and, 
there is a certain um, world that you live in when you're in, the, in law enforcement. You just believe that nothing's going to happen to you. But you know, you do have to come home and tell your family. Um, it's probably one of the first times in my life that I can ever remember being um, scared. Uh, it's one thing to, to be just yourself. It's another thing to realize that there's somebody out there that wants to take you away from your wife and they want to take you away from your daughter. Um, you tend to react accordingly. And you end up getting a conviction in the case, but explain what the Virginia prosecutor ended up telling you afterwards. <laughs> um, you've done your homework. Uh, <laughs> it's a little terrifying. Um, uh, we found out later on that the, the person who had threatened me, he was also serving another sentence in, in Virginia, and that sentence was for um, shooting a Maryland state trooper. Um, and the prosecutor in Virginia, uh, I remember the day uh, he called me up and he said, you know, he would have killed you, or at least tried. And he had ordered hits on, what was it, two police officers? Uh, two police officers, and actually one was shot uh -huh. um, uh, in the chest, survived. But, but um, You were once quoted uh, as saying, uh, stand up in a courtroom and be a prosecutor with a guy who just killed four people, set his girlfriend on fire, and shot her in the back of the head twice, and you know if you lose, he goes back on the street. What's being in that position like? Uh, sobering. Um, it takes courage to stand up and, and, and say that you're going to be the person who's going to be in the breach to make the right decisions, to recommend the right decisions, to ask people to rally uh, behind you. And, you know, one of the great things about that job as a prosecutor is day after day after day, you're thrust into that decision. Um, what kind of pressure? Moderate. Moderate? <laughs> um, you know, it's, um, uh, it, it, it does uh, wear on you a little bit, uh, but to be dead honest with you, um, to me it's about the, the moment and the, the, the courage to take that initial stand. The, the pressure uh, is something that tends to be external uh, if you let it get to you. But when we're in that courtroom or when I was talking to my detectives or when we were talking about to, to our team about what our job is, you know, surprisingly, there, there isn't a tremendous amount of pressure at that moment. Um, so I, I, to the extent that there's pressure, there's always pressure on making sure that you're doing it the right way. But when there's a quadruple murderer uh, and, and if you make a mistake, um, he's back out on the street, um, there's pressure to make sure you get it right. Uh, I want to jump to 2008. You are uh, working on then-Senator Obama's uh, presidential campaign, and you end up getting a call from <laughs> the NFL PA search committee who's, you know, charged with finding the next head or executive director of the NFL uh, Players Association. Why didn't you initially even return the call? Uh, the election's a month away. Um, you know, you're even almost allowing yourself to think about what the country might be after November and, and what you'd want to do. This is an unreal time. Unreal. Um, you have a young man who's excited, a base. He's the first 
uh, person to, to, to be in a position where we think an African-American is going to become the president of the United States. And then out of the blue, you get a call and, and someone says that, you know, you need to call this person back. And the first call was rather cryptic. You know, the message I got from my assistant was rather cryptic about someone looking to see if I was interested in a new business opportunity. You know, and at that point, you know, the answer is no. I mean, right. we're on the cusp of something tremendous. If there's going to be a, a new business opportunity at all, it's going to be an opportunity to come back here in the city and and be the, the U.S. attorney. And, and that was an exciting thought. Uh, How long did it even take to understand what, what the opportunity actually was? About a week. Okay. Um, uh, I got a call back because I didn't initially call the person back because I thought it was a headhunter looking for another law firm. Uh, and I got another call back and they said, well, no, we're interested in uh, uh, whether you'd want to be in the candidacy to, to be the next executive director of the NFL Players Association. And... Um, I went home that night, talked to my wife. Let's just say that uh, that first conversation um, wasn't necessarily an enthusiastic <laughs> uh, endorsement of, of getting into the, the process of, um, of the executive director. Was that the hardest person to win over? Um, she's always the hardest person to win over. Uh, uh, <laughs> but it's lasted for more than 20 years because uh, it's based on fear. I'm afraid of her. And she generally is always right. So, um, you know, we, we talked about it for almost another week. And uh, it wasn't until uh, almost two weeks later that I got back to him and said, I'd be interested in the process. You, you were a guy, you know, only played, and it's been talked about before, only played football up until high school. Uh, lacked expertise in labor law. A at that point, what did you really feel you could most bring to the position? The first thing I talked to the search committee about was um, the necessity of having a plan, um, the necessity of, of the players as employees or, or, or workers understanding exactly what situation they were in and what situation they were going to be in in about two and a half years. The thing that that I had done for a very long time was um, sitting down with corporations that were in a particularly tough situation, trying to tear the situation apart into as many um, minute or, or manageable pieces, understanding those pieces and then putting those pieces back together in a way that you could at least come up with a um, reasonable and, and successful plan to deal with it. And, and that's something that for the clients that I had in private practice, that I think that's what we excelled at. Um, and, and simply for the people that uh, I was with, you know, my team, we sat down one day and said, let's figure this out. And, and, and figuring it out is, is no easy task. Um, you know, you're, you're in a sport where uh, the nature of the sport is that everybody second guesses every quarterback on Monday morning. Uh, but just like looking at a complex defensive scheme or a complex offensive scheme, what you're seeing on TV is only, um, you know, maybe one quarter of what's really going on. So we began really first trying to understand what the National Football League was. 
Um, and then second, we really sat down and tried to figure out who the players and the, and the union um, is. And then taking a hard look about where those two entities are, um, how they're sort of moving towards each other uh, into a conflict that's going to culminate, we thought at some point, um, uh, with a lockout. But understanding each and every point of that process and trying to figure out whether or not uh, there was a way for the players to confront it and come through the process better than where they were before. You end up uh, being one of three in terms of final candidates for the NFLPA uh, executive director job. It, it, it was you, Troy Vincent, Trace Armstrong, the, the latter two of which being former players and former uh, union presidents. So you, you know, as you said, were kind of the outsider in the process and then defy all odds and end up being uh, elected. I believe like 77 of your first 100 days on the job you were traveling. What was that like? <laughs> um, painful? <laughs> painful. Uh, but painful from a, just a grueling standpoint. I mean, that's a very tough travel schedule. Um, it was important for us to try to uh, get to all 32 teams because one of the things that, that became clear to us was that our membership um, can be incredibly... Uh, resilient and strong if they are empowered um, and they can only be empowered if they understand and the one thing that our guys excel at is the ability to understand to understand then what the plan is and to execute the plan and did you feel that was lacking prior to uh, you coming on board? No, not so much. Uh, uh, you know, not so much a problem as um, you know the way the, the the players association was before I got here, and the way it was now that that I was here. The the premium on on education and empowerment was that in a relatively short amount of time, the owners are going to opt out of this agreement, and we had every belief that ultimately they were going to lock the players out. So the only way to, to put, be in a position to react to that was to make sure that on a very short amount of time, we educate and, and empower our players to understand what's coming and the necessity for them to prepare. So, uh, you know, look, you don't have to look far in our history uh, to understand what our challenges are uh, as an organization. Um, the league has always done a very good job historically of focusing on high-profile players, uh, making them feel like they are above the collective group of players, um, making them feel that they uh, are entities uh, unto themselves, that uh, when uh, times of labor strife would appear, they, are, they have done a very good job historically of making sure that high-profile players either stood on the sidelines of labor fights or worst yet, as we know from, from history, crossing the line um, and opposing their union. Um, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that at some point the National Football League would, would make the exact same attempts uh, in our scenario. So the only thing you really have at that moment is the speed with which um, you can 
actually go out and reach and touch and excite your base and excite your players about the challenges that are coming. And for guys like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and Drew Brees and Ray Lewis and, and um, guys who are household uh, superstar names, uh, to impress upon them very quickly that this is a fight for all of us. And, and we're going to need them as much as we're going to need anybody else uh, as a member of this team. What was the learning curve like for you? Everest. As far as where we needed to be on the learning curve, I believe that on the day uh, that I was elected, um, we were 90% of the way there in understanding what we needed to know in order to prepare our players. So for example, um, you know, before even the election, during the process of, of talking to the executive committee as a, as a candidate, um, I didn't really talk to our players as you should elect me because of X, Y, and Z. Um, we had almost four or five hour conversations about this is the National Football League as it exists as a 501c6 nonprofit. This is, these are the TV contracts that they have and this is what they've done in order to increase their leverage against you. So the thing, whether you elect me or not, um, it seems to me that as you formulate where you are and where you need to be, here is a course or, or here is a, a, a process that you need to engage in. And if you haven't engaged into that process up until this point, you're behind. My conversation with guys like Jason Witten or Demarcus Ware or, or um, Ryan Clark or Charlie Batch, those discussions were about, look, how do you see the world um, and, and how do you see yourself as dealing with the fight that you know is coming? Um, that was what the process was like for me. And, and to me, the, the beauty of it and the excitement of it is you know, that picture on the wall was, was taken on the day that I got elected. Really that day was the day that um, I realized that we had a group of leaders um, who were to commit themselves uh, to take a stand. And, and that, uh, I think anybody in business will tell you, is 95% um, of the issue. How would you explain your mindset of just trying to continuously improve as a person or in your profession? You know, and that, I mean, I'm going to have to go back to, to my family. You know, my, you know, my grandfather uh, had, had 14 kids. He was a pastor, um, continued to put food on their table while he was sharecropping in Southern Virginia. Um, my dad got drafted into the Marine Corps before he could finish high school. Um, my mother was abandoned by uh, her parents and she raised herself from the time that she was um, 14 years old um, after surviving being burned over 70% of her body. I come from a tremendously tough uh, group of people. Um, what they have always shown throughout their lives is a, um, a will um, and, and sort of a loving discipline uh, about how to conduct themselves and, and how to take care of the people both in their family and in their extended family. 
And, and what we try to do here um, is to engage in sort of a loving discipline about how we take care of ourselves and, and our extended family of players and their extended family. Wargaming, uh, explain exactly what that is. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in wargaming, um, uh, or, you know, for, for the philosophy major in me. No, I don't okay. think so. Um, you know, for the, you know, the, the, the pure, you know, the, the, the academic side of it is, is advanced game theory. You know, whether it is uh, employing symbolic logic or, or logic or logical tools to analyze a problem, it's not purely a mathematic uh, process, uh, but there is a almost mathematical rigor to which you um, think about scenarios, um, deconstruct those scenarios, uh, then put them back again, and your ability to come up with multiple scenarios um, that encompass, hopefully, all of the things that could happen, and then gaming your way through so that uh, at least two things can happen. One, that you are not uh, at a disadvantage given what occurs. Uh, but hopefully that you are at an advantage uh, regardless of what occurs. How would you describe your negotiating strategy? Deliberate. How so? <laughs> um, it is, uh, it, it's designed to make sure that we understand what we're getting into uh, fully. Um, um, and that means that uh, you understand, obviously, both the, the, the potential upsides and the potential downsides, but that you understand fully the paradigm that you're in. Um, from the, the, the wargaming or advanced game strategy standpoint, you are not surprised by anything your opponent does. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the deliberate nature in which you approach what you do, uh, what they do, what they're thinking, what they might do, and then what you have to do. Uh, I think before you even had the chance to really meet the uh, NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, you had already uh, publicly spoke about, about the possibility of asking Congress to examine the NFL's uh, tax-exempt status and its limited antitrust exemption. I mean, why say that before you ever even have the chance to meet kind of your counterpart in all of this? Well, you know, I, I would look at it as if if um, if you're walking down an alley and you know that the other person at the end of the alley already has a gun, um, you know, there's a I'm sure there's some people in the world who would say that you should nonetheless try to walk up and shake hands with that guy and hope it all works out. Um, there's other people who would say you should protect yourself, make sure that you're not at a disadvantage and approach him and hope that you can shake hands, but if they don't want to shake hands, you're prepared for whatever happens. So it was a very calculated move. Um, there's nothing that we do that isn't deliberate and calculated. It's what I do. <laughs> When news came out that the NFLPA 
um, was going to file a collusion lawsuit uh, against the NFL. Tell about the call you got from the commissioner. Roger is a, is a tremendous leader. Um, he and I have a, a good working relationship. Early on, um, we made it clear to each other. I, I never talk about our conversations right. uh, with him uh, to, the, to the public. Um, uh, as far as I know, he doesn't talk about any conversations I have with him publicly. Right. I, I think we always have to be in a position where we respect um, the job that each uh, of us have. Um, so, um, you know, people can report on anything they want. I know people are always interested in this, how is your relationship? and these soft questions of uh, how do you feel about each other? Well, 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 I mean, you can understand it though, because you were the uh, two men leading the you know most popular and powerful sport in the country. I guess what was reported was that you know when he called you, um, he he wanted the suit not to be filed or to be dropped, and you asked if there could be concessions that certain concessions that the owners would make uh, as part of the upcoming you know labor talks between the NFL and the NFL um, PA and he said you know give me 30 days to look into it he got back to you and said the owners were going to be unable to do so to what extent was the request made really for the concessions or was it more for getting an understanding of the level of influence that he has with the owners it could be either. Okay. That's about as good as you're going to do. <laughs> you, can't, you can't blame me for trying. No, no, it's fair. The other question as it relates to the commissioner, how strongly do you feel that that position has too much power? It seems to me that any situation where uh, either side believes that they have to insist on a winner-take-all uh, or a zero-sum uh, position. Um, look, y whether it's talking about football or talking about both houses uh, of, the, of the large white building up the street, um, nothing can truly get done in a growth-oriented, positive-oriented, mutually beneficial way if you spend more time fighting each other than you do trying to come up with collective um, wins for everyone. It, it just doesn't work. And, and, and frankly, I don't believe that it helps our game. And I don't believe it grows our game if our players don't trust the commissioner. You don't feel the players trust the commissioner? I don't believe it's good um, if our players don't trust him. I, I don't. I think our players should, should think that this is a mutual endeavor to play the best game at the world, uh, in the world, at the highest level in the world. And, and if, if we end up in a world where our players and their families and our former players and our players to come don't trust and don't believe that, that both sides um, are working towards that goal, I know that that's bad for our game and for our business. Um, at the same time, if you can't get there on the collective side, I, I do believe that it's important that either side has the ability to fight for their constituency. Um, you know, people are very quick uh, and willing to say things like labor peace, 
uh, or we, we're at a point where there is uh, uh, peace and harmony. Um, the reality of any one of those things is peace and harmony sometimes depends on where you're standing looking at that peace and at that harmony. Um, you know, historically, if, if you're in a world where there is a subjected class and, and that class doesn't have rights, doesn't have the ability to, to, to vote uh, for their interest, uh, doesn't have an ability to, to have uh, people who can represent their interest, from the perspective of the people who are in power, I am sure that that looked like peace. Uh, from the from the perspective of the the oppressed, where you, you you've got to go to a poll and and take a poll test to see if you can have the right to vote, or or whether you're going to go and and cast a vote and and be intimidated from being um, at the polls, or if you look up and your representatives are are people who don't look like you, who don't ask your opinion, and certainly. Uh, don't make decisions that are in your best interest. From the perspective of that person, um, I doubt that they would consider that to be peaceful or, or harmonious. Um, sometimes there are those times where we have to fight. And, and if two sides are equally strong, what happens? There's sometimes a momentous conflict. Uh, but that doesn't mean that um, that's all you care about. It, it does mean that without the ability to reach a consensus that you do have the ability to fight for what's right. I mean, if the position is that the control or power of the commissioner should be lessened some, what's the incentive for the NFL to do so when it's been one way for so long and always worked out seemingly quite well for them? You know, you can go back, um, you know, in, in my short lifetime, uh, and see quotes from NFL owners who said that free agency was going to destroy football. When uh, Ed Garvey and Gene Upshaw after him said that, uh, pl that there should be limitations on the workday, uh, that players should only be subjected to a certain number of hours on the field, that, uh, uh, that NFL players should be entitled to fair medical care, you actually had owners in the National Football League um, say that that would impose anarchy, that it would ruin the sport as we know it, um, and that none of this was good for the quote-unquote game of football. Um, those were actual words at, out of actual people's mouths. And you know what? I actually believe that they believed it. They believed that changes that would make the game better for the players, they believe that it would ruin the sport as they know it. Minority hiring in the NFL, um, what are your thoughts on where things stand on that front? Um, I believe that uh, anytime we fall into a world where we're giving uh, quote unquote lip service uh, to a rule, uh, that has as his goal achieving a fair end that uh, we're not we're not doing our best. Um, so if if you have a Rooney rule that teams sometimes feel that they have to abide by and sometimes feel that they don't, uh, what good is a rule um, if you're not enforcing it in a way um, to make sure that you're achieving the end that that you have? 
Um, uh, second thing, while head coaches uh, are certainly an important part of it, um, I, we continue to look and, and, and be vigilant about uh, making sure that people get opportunities throughout the hierarchy of leadership. So whether it's GMs, uh, trainers, doctors, front office people, um, I think those are um, equally important um, roles uh, where we should be trying to increase diversity and, and increase the representation of all of, of all persons in that process. And and the last thing I would say is there's no reason why that should stop before we get to owners too. The most satisfying victory of your career to date would be what? When we uh, when we came to our team meeting in Florida a few weeks after being locked out by the National Football League. You're there with a hundred of, of, of the player leaders. Uh, we've just been locked out. Uh, the league has pulled the trigger on what they consider to be uh, the most potent weapon uh, that they have to make the players submit uh, to, to their economic proposal. And we take a vote uh, down there about whether we're going to stick to our plan and, and go forward or whether we're going to try to figure out what to do. And, and when you're among the, those group of players and there's no panic, um, there's no concern, uh, there's no drama, uh, and you watch a group of extremely, extremely young men uh, conduct their business in a reasoned and deliberate way, um, that was a victory of the three previous years. The uh, deal the NFL and NFLPA reached to uh, have labor peace for... I don't believe in labor peace. You don't believe in labor peace? To we have, hey, look, here, here's what we have. For it's a business relationship. Um, does, it, does it mean that there aren't things that, that we should be striving for to be better? Yes. But it's a business relationship. How about take me into the best negotiating session you had with the commissioner as that agreement was being reached? Maybe the most memorable <laughs> moment for you from that process actually in the room at the bargaining table? Probably the best moment or one of the most memorable moments uh, that we had was in New York uh, during the last few days leading up to whether we were going to get a deal uh, or not. And um, there's probably f 20 of our players, our senior leadership in the room, uh, everybody from Jeff Saturday to Tony Richardson to, to Drew to um, Kevin Mawai. Um, I think uh, Tyson Claybo was there from the Atlanta Falcons. Um, and up on the ticker, across the TV screen, we see that uh, John Mackey's passed away. Um, that's one of those moments that uh, you, you, me as a, as a leader in this organization, um, our player leaders, um, where, where they understood, I think, um, who they were where they were and what they were doing. Um, for a player like John, 
who was our first president to battle all of the things, many of the things that you and I just talked about, but on a much worse scale. Um, John lost his job as a Hall of Fame tight end because he had the courage to stand up to represent players who were probably going to benefit um, more in the future than, than they were presently. And for a, a man who loved to play football as much as they did, he made the decision knowing that it would probably cost him his job. And it did. And the only people who took it away from him were the same group of, collective group of, of owners, albeit removed by a few decades. But the same group of people that we are negotiating with are the same group of people that yanked from John Mackey um, something that he loved to do. And he willingly stood up to do it because he knew that it was the right thing to do and it was going to benefit players um, long after he left. And, and for our group to uh, have that moment of silence in that room for John Mackey, while we're separated um, a few doors in a big law firm trying to figure out whether or not we're going to play football. Um, of all of the negotiation sessions, um, that's probably the one that um, I dig the most. Retired players, uh, the changes in terms of support of them that you would still like to see made? Well, um, I think we further what we started in 2009. Um, I, I did believe that uh, we had work to do to, to heal um, and, and to uh, make sure that everybody who has played this game um, and who is playing this game understand that the common denominator that will always unite them is that they are players, not owners. And, and again, um, sometimes in life we spend a whole heck of a lot of time trying to figure out why we're different from everybody else. When it comes to the business of football, um, there is no more uh, significant demarcation of who you are as to whether you are a player or an owner. If you are an owner, you see the world differently. If you are a player, your head gets concussed, your knees get broken, your back aches, and you break your fingers. That's our world. So we shouldn't be in a situation where there is a, a, a rift uh, or a, a, a uh, disassociation between those who uh, played this game and those who play. Um, look, the, the reality of our business is, and a lot of fans don't get it, but do you know when you become a former player? When? You become a former player usually when you were on a practice field and the general manager has decided to cut you that morning. You're cut that morning. You don't know because you're still practicing. You become a former player as you walk off the field from the practice field and into your locker room. Whatever that five minutes, ten minutes there is from that morning when you were a current player to the time that you got cut, that's the span of time where you become a former player. So to us, it makes no sense to then draw a distinction somehow between someone who plays and someone who didn't. Because five minutes, 
that's when you became a former player. So as we go forward, um, yes, we have a great business arrangement with the National Football League. Do I think that that means that we should stop thinking about um, things like how do we engage in research to help former players? Um, no, we, we need to do those things. Um, if, if there comes a time when we realize uh, whether science increases or, or we come to a medically uh, justified scenario where we believe that we should be doing something better to treat, um, you know, whether it's Alzheimer's or, or, or some other type of degenerative condition. What we're going to do is approach the league about um, making those changes, even though we already have a CBA. I mean, one critical issue right now, and, I, and again, I know there is a tremendous amount of focus on concussions, um, but one of the issues that concerns me right now is the issue of chronic pain. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the number of players who are suffering from chronic pain as opposed to those who are suffering or who have a concussion in every year, I'm willing to believe now that, that the, the number of players suffering from chronic pain is on a four to five time scale. It's that illness of chronic pain that can lead to the early onset of depression. <clears throat> that it's chronic pain that might lead our players uh, to have a dependency on, on painkillers or, or alcohol. That those things then result in strains on marriage and family. So to the extent that, that we continue to look at those issues that approach our collective family of players, um, those are things that we are continuing to fight for uh, and continuing to research. We know that our current <coughs> former players are suffering from health and safety issues, um, many of which that are going to continue well into the world after they, they leave football. One of the closest parallels we were able to find, um, given what our players go through, is what the, the military has been going through on treating their, their soldiers for everything from PTSD to injuries to uh, post-military career issues. So we submitted ourselves to come up with the best um, plan to allocate those resources. What do you see as being the end game or goal with regards to the money? You know, good question. Um, um, the, the end game, hopefully, is to come up with um, a, a, a research protocol um, that addresses a number of critical issues whether it's coming up with ways of, of testing helmets and putting money into research to come up with uh, safer equipment. We want to look at things like field surfaces. We want to look at preventative med medication. We want to look at alternative training regimens. Uh, how long does the body need to recover? The concussion issue is one that we've pushed um, hard on since we came here. Um, it's hard to believe that when I got when I started this job, the head of the league's concussion committee was a rheumatologist. Um, so have we come a long way? Yes, but only by engaging in a very disciplined way of trying to understand the problems that we're facing and coming up with a disciplined plan to to deal with those problems. We will effectuate change for for the better only when we embrace the realities of who we are 
what we do, and where we need to be. Who we are is a group of very young players playing a game uh, that at times is, it, it can be dangerous. Um, what we do is a, a, a game and a process of football uh, that has inherent risk. Um, there are necessary and, and very foreseeable consequences of, of the game that our players play. When, when the league embraces and accepts those things, that's when we can truly move to the last category of where we need to be. I mean, uh, you, you said if the NFL, or I mean, if the NFL fails to provide uh, a safe working environment, you've made a point of saying the NFLPA reserves the right to seek any relief that the players or you believes appropriate. How far would you take that? As far as we need to take it in order to keep our players safe. Um, that's how we make every. I know that uh, people are sort of fond of, of, of casting this and and. Um, as adversarial uh, a world as possible. But the reality is um, if you have to take for as a fact that what our players do puts them in harm's way. Do you ever see it getting to the point of a strike being necessary? Um, I always see it as a point of we will look at every option that we have in order to keep our players safe. I never want anybody from our staff to walk into a locker room and say to our players, we're only going to work as hard as we think we need to work in order to keep you safe. So when it comes to taking action to making sure that our guys are safe, um, we will do whatever we think is necessary to keep them as safe as possible. In college, you're a freshman and decide to run for class president. How surprised were you by the negative feedback mm. that you received? Um, you know, I was stunned. I, I, I've always been uh, fortunate enough to, to be in a, in a racially mixed uh, uh, climate both in school and, and, and elsewhere. Um, but it was the first time that uh, the racism was overt to me, that, um, that there was a comfort uh, level in some people to be overtly hostile. And that, that's eye-opening you know, for, for a number of reasons. One, you, 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 are, you don't think you're incredibly young, but you're incredibly young. Um, you're away from home. Um, you're in a new state. Um, you're in a place where you're not familiar. Um, you know, you're trying to do what every freshman's trying to do. You're trying to figure out school without uh, at least telling everyone around you that you're utterly terrified. <laughs> I mean, we've all been through it. What was some of the negativity directed your way? You know, the, the, um, the messages in your mailbox, the, the, the calls from people to your dorm room, um, you know, the notes that people are sliding under your door. Um, you know, it, it's a, um, uh, you know, I, I, I actually do stay away from sports analogies, but, um, you know, it, it's a gut check in a way. Is there anything you specifically remember that was? Well, I remember to you? everything specifically. <laughs> um, what what stands out the most? The the ease and the um, 
again, the, the comfort that a person must have in order to, you know, write a, a note that, that starts off with the N-word and what do you think you're doing and to have a guy actually sign his name to it. To me is one of those things that uh, I am sure my dad and my mom and my grandfather, I am positive that they had no trouble appreciating because that was what they were surrounded with. That was the, that was the world uh, that they lived in. Um, you know, my, my experience, my world is, is um, you know, 40 years, 30 years later for them and uh, 20 years later than them. Um, so when, you know, while they weren't shocked, um, I know they were concerned. Um, I, I know that just like every parent, uh, and I now think about, you know, my kids, you, you want to do everything you can to shelter, protect them from the things that are ugly in the world. You know, at the same time, you're trying to balance to make sure that they understand the reality of the world. How did it impact the election for you? I won. You know, um, to me, it's important um, to have the courage to, to stick with it. Um, and, and you know, you, t you asked me earlier about the pressure. Um, I, again, even though people were writing the notes and saying you can't win and saying that you shouldn't run and, 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 and making sure that you understood just how ugly, you know, they could be, I didn't really feel, again, that much external pressure. The only pressure I felt was, um, that internal, what are you going to do? Um, and and I don't look really at 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 options of of backing up or surrendering or um, giving in to things that I know that are wrong. Thanks for listening to the In Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.